Our scripture reading for the lesson is in 2 Timothy, beginning in chapter 1, and verse 3. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week I talked a little bit about the challenges to our faith, and they are numerous. The mindset of the world around us, the unspoken philosophy of the age is humanism, and the philosophy as well of modernism, that human beings are the highest good that there is in the world, in the universe. And so if we just strive to be all that we can be, as the army would put it, then we're reaching the pinnacle of what God has intended us to be, and that is really the highest good. Now, Modernism says that basically uh, the power that we have is within us in the sense that whatever we experience and what we believe and what seems right to us is what's right. There's no such thing as objective truth anywhere in any religion in any book. And really, if I find that it's true for me, then it's true. And that's the bottom line. It's absolutely where modernism is today. Modernity is what it's called. These things can be a tremendous drain on our faith, as we mentioned last week, because they can slowly erode what we believe and what our faith teaches us from God's word. And over time, it can be a very devastating, debilitating kind of thing. Today, I want to balance that out a little bit by talking about the fact that there is indeed power within us. There really, really is power within us. It's just that it's not quite what Satan's made it out to be and seem in the worldview that exists around us. So I want to focus on the power that God gives to us and that is in us in Christ. Now, in the first 
of the letter of Paul to Timothy. The context is that here's this young man, dear to Paul's heart, but he's a young man, he's a young evangelist, and he's given the task of establishing the church in Ephesus. Now remember, this is a gospel that is preaching that uh, in various places is being oppressed by the Roman government, and people are dying for their faith. So far, it's working out okay in Ephesus. But there are all kinds of problems. Uh, now, how do you establish a church? Well, you have to have some kind of order. You have to establish church leaders and elders. You have to establish the authority as the person that is able to do that. And uh, so Timothy's role gets difficult. Um, there are serious challenges from individuals, serious, serious theological challenges. There's a, a practical problem of determining who the real widows are and who they aren't. Now, that sounds kind of obscure for us, but back then, uh, funds were being given to widows, and we had to figure out who the real widows are. are. Did they come about it because of honest reasons, or did they just decide that they like to have money given to them and so on? So it was a very difficult uh, social, political, and theological problem. So this was engaging the church there at Ephesus and engaging uh, this young man, Timothy. There were people that were not accepting Timothy's authority. And so they were, so Paul says in chapter 4, don't let anyone despise your youth. So you can imagine, here there are wealthy, powerful people. Some of them are haughty because of their money. And they're saying to him, who do you think you are and who gave you the authority to say these kind of things? Well, let no one despise your youth, Timothy. You've been given this authority from the Lord through me. I'm designating you. This is an individual and you need to carry out the gospel of the Lord. There's some people in Ephesus that uh, were having some very profane gossip and chatter. Impiety, lack of piety. And so Paul is saying, you know, it, it's gangrene. It's eating away at the real body of Christ here, and it's destroying this. It's an infection that's impacting the entire body. In fact, he claims, he names two people, Hymenaeus and Philetus. These guys claim that the resurrection has already taken place. Going like, oh my gosh. We can't have that because that disturbs the entire basis and core of our faith. So, so there's some severe strains on Timothy. Some strains that apparently finally get to him so that by the time of the second letter, Paul needs to remind him to rekindle the gift of God that is within you. God didn't give us a spirit of cowardice. I hope he's not saying that Timothy had a spirit of cowardice, but he's just alluding to what we need to maintain the strength and the spirit of power, the spirit of love, and the spirit of self-discipline. So don't be ashamed of testifying about me. The fire must have died down, though. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense that Paul would say, fan it up into flame again. 
But we can understand why that might happen. And we can put ourselves in that situation saying, you know what? My battery's been drained. I need to recharge it. Of course, it didn't have batteries back then, but if that were the case, that's the idea. And so, Timothy, you've got to fan this into flame again. So I'm thinking about power, and there's all kinds of different power. There's all kinds of different kinds of power. The rocket to the moon, the space, there's all, it's it, the power of atomic energy that no one even thought of a couple generations ago. It's absolutely transformed our world in very small ways, in very large ways, politically, economically, theologically. But I thought about some man-made power, some uh, natural power God that gives us, and I, I was looking at some of this and uh, thought about some of the slides that my lovely wife, Wanda, uh, who is subjecting herself to be present at all of these weekend services, two in a row, praise her, <laughs> okay? I don't know how she's doing it. But this is an illustration to me of a power of destruction. Now, some of you may recognize this as one of the places in Yellowstone Park. The power of the volcanoes, the heat, the devastation that just destroys everything and nothing ever grows there again. Now, for hundreds of years, I don't know how long it's been. Now, there's some bacteria that we understand gives the color to the various pools there. But this reminded me of the power of destruction, reminded me of, of the Old Testament pit of Gehenna. I mean, it's just utter devastation and desolation, but that's power. Another one is man-made power. This is Hoover Dam. It took four years to build, to harness the power of the water in the river to make electrical energy through the huge dynamos that are there. Now, did you know dynamos is exact transliteration of the Greek word for dunamis? And so when Paul says the power within you, he's using that word dynamo. So they just took the Greek word, dynamo creates electrical power, dynamite has stored energy and explosive power. It's a fascinating place to visit if you've never been. The, the power of the river that's, that's tamed and then makes all this incredible electrical power. And you can go down about six stories in elevators and visit the place. And it's just absolutely fascinating to visit and see what they've done with this, uh, this place. It's just uh, really enormous. I don't have stock in Hoover Dam, okay? But it's a neat place to visit if you ever uh, want to go. It's not all that far from here, uh, relatively. Here's another example of natural power. This it never seems to, uh, to fascinate me, the, the power of water that just never quits and rushes over the cliffs and with a tremendous force. Niagara Falls, many of you have seen probably, familiar with, it just never quits, never quits. But over many, many years, the rocks finally give away and it becomes, the, the gap becomes bigger and bigger and bigger as it erodes the ground and the rocks. Tremendous power. If you were underneath that, you wouldn't live very long 
would you? Now, there's a couple people that have managed to survive going over in barrels, but not a good thing uh, to try to do. Another uh, illustration is the uh, tremendous force of the water flow in the river. As it makes its own channel, it's going to go where it wants to go. That's fascinating to me, and it's, it's thrilling, not only the sight and the sound of the power that's there. And, of course, the uh, falling of the water over great distances that gathers power and the, the, the steam and the, and the evaporation. It's just, it's absolutely amazing to me, and it captivates my imagination Everybody, I hope, would recognize this one, this iconic picture of Old Faithful. 2,000 gallons per minute. Now, normally, Old Faithful goes off approximately every hour, and it goes for about five minutes. That's a lot of water, and it's a lot of power that shoots that water straight up in the air. It's, it's a fascinating now here's one that I bet most of you have not seen, although it's only 500 feet or yards away from Old Faithful. This is beehive geyser. It has a little cone at the bottom, and so uh, it, they call it beehive because of that little cone. But this little guy, this geyser, is actually more powerful than Old Faithful, and it goes up 200 feet generally instead of about 160, puts out more water with more force. It's amazing. We just happened to come back a few times with our other grandkids, and so we're able to see it. Most people haven't seen Beehive because it doesn't go off very often or nearly as often as Old Faithful, so unless you'd wait around most of the day, uh, you wouldn't be able to catch it unless you just happen to catch it at that uh, particular time. Here's the one I really like. This is, this is cool. We call this guy Elmer. I was talking with Pat this week as he saw this slide. And he said, you know, my wife and I were just there, and I think we saw the same guy walking down the same street. <laughs> so we called him Elmer. Now, you know, this guy weighs about 3,000 pounds, I imagine. He's just walking down the middle of the street on the entrance to Yellowstone. Uncle, like, you've got to be kidding me. Now, there were none of, no other bison around. He's the only one. He's walking right in the middle of it going like, you know, I have a healthy respect for him. I'm going to roll down the window and take a picture of that, or my wife is anyway. I'll just keep moving forward, thank you very much. But if he took a notion to decide he didn't like you, uh, he wouldn't have any problem whatsoever flipping over that car, would he? He's a big beast, and it's tre tremendous. Talk about power and an animal that can run almost 40 miles an hour. That's amazing. It's absolutely amazing to me. So it's an illustration of power that's in things around us that are not created power that we've harnessed, like power of the atom, which is beyond anything we can even comprehend. But it's absolutely Incredible. Now, compared, to, and so Paul's saying to Timothy, look, I want you to have the power of God within you, and I want you to rekindle it. Now, Timothy apparently had his power eroded, de-energized, and the fire had died down, because he says to him three places 
in just the space of about 30 verses. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of testifying about our Lord and of me, his prisoner. Yeah, the main man in our faith is the Apostle Paul. Saw the Lord. Oh, but he's in prison, shackles. Well, he's still the leader of our movement. Mm, that wouldn't, be, wouldn't really sell well on the street corner, would it? He goes on to say in verse 12 that I am not ashamed. It's a very powerful theme here. For I know the one who I've put my trust. In Romans 1, he talks about the fact that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God into salvation. In verse 15 of chapter 2, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. So it sounds to me like Timothy was having a problem feeling a sense of shame. Now I couldn't help but take some time to talk about this word. Somebody said one time, we're ashamed of shame. So we tend not to talk about it. And I did not know uh, until some time ago when I did some research in the area that this topic was never addressed in all of psychological literature until about 30 years ago. It just was never, ever addressed. When John Branshaw first wrote his book on shame the, and healing the, the, um, see, healing the, the bind of shame, uh, the shame that binds you, in his work with addiction and recovery area, it's a tremendous book that's still very, very helpful. Shame is the opposite of the humanistic centrality of self. If self is the highest good, shame is its exact opposite. Now, a good definition to get started for just a few minutes is that it's a pervasive, all-encompassing sense of inadequacy or failure. You're just not good enough, and you'll never measure up. Bad boy, bad girl, what is your problem? Why can't you get it right? Why did you do that? Why did you hit your sister? Why did you take that toy? Well, let me think. I was feeling a bit inadequate and under... What do you wind up doing? I'm a bad boy. And you lower your eyes and lower your head. I'll bet you most of you have experienced that. It's not just something that you can say, Oh, well, don't feel that way. It's not a problem. Who's ever saying that's just having a bad day? They don't really mean that you're messed up. Too bad. So you have this pervasive deep down sense that something is wrong with you. See, it winds up being not about what you did in your behavior. It winds up being about you as a human being. Now, there is such a thing as good shame, bad shame, but there's very little good shame. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 8, 
uh, they didn't have any shame about their disgusting and loathsome behavior. Uh-oh, it's not going to work. Now, today, it's like, shame? What shame? If you flaunt it, you got it. No problem. Come out of the closet. Big deal. The problem is you guys are having shame. That's the problem. So don't have shame. So we don't have shame. Then it goes to the opposite extreme. Well, we don't, we don't have time to deal with that this morning. But this whole sense that there's something defective within you is contrary to God's will. Now, we all have sin. It's another story. That's not the same thing. We want to make a clear distinction between the two. But many men, mostly men, suffer with shame. Many men do. Now, women do as well, but they handle it, and we work with it quite a bit differently. And so when men are impacted by this disgusting sense... They often overcompensate in various ways. In the words of Richard Foster, and, right, Roger, uh, uh, no, it's not Richard Foster. Can't remember his first name. Um, but his wonderful book by the same title of Money, Sex, and Power. And so that's how they're overcompensating in an effort to try to get away from this disgusting stuff within us. And so, possessions, power, control, trophy wives, trophy husbands, it's a nasty, nasty kind of thing. And you know who is probably one of the prime illustrators of shame internalized? Now, this is just me, so if somebody disagrees, that's fine. I think it was Luther. Luther, think about this a second. I can never do enough. He's beating himself both literally and physically, literally, physically, and spiritually and emotionally. Never do enough, never do enough, never do enough. Often he's going to confession daily, up to six hours at a time. Can you imagine? Six hours at a time. He's confessing to the fellow named Johann von Staupitz, the vicar of the Augustinian order of monks there at Wittenberg. Finally, Staupitz gets exasperated. He just had enough of it. He says, listen, Luther, God is not angry with you. You're angry at God. Don't you know God commands you to hope? If you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. Parricide, blasphemy, adultery, instead of these picadillos. But finally, in that tower experience that we are familiar with with Luther, he finally got it that it's not the power of God against us, but it's for us. It's not what we do, but what God does and what he has done in us. We live out his grace. We receive it by faith. In the first day of the Diet of Firms, 
He was caught up again in self-doubt and inadequacy. And he stalled for time saying, well, I, I, I need to examine these books closely to make sure that I've really written them. Well, of course he knew he'd written them. But he, he went back to that sense of, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. But the next day, he stood in front of the princes, the electors and the highest church leaders of that day. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. And he was ready to die for his faith. Talk about a tremendous change in his life. Well, it wasn't because he decided one day, he raised his hand and said, you know, I'm just going to have better self-worth. I'm just going to think of myself uh, with greater esteem. Uh, It doesn't work that way. The power of God came upon him because of Christ's justifying grace. One of the things that is unique and one of the the pieces of theology that's unique to Luther and unique to the Lutheran faith, I find this absolutely fascinating. This little Latin phrase, forgive me if I don't pronounce it quite accurately, but it's sumul hustus et peccator. Simultaneously just and sinner. Now that's a paradox. Talk about what looks like a contradiction. It really, really is. But it's the key to dealing with shame. I found out that there's very little literature in the area. A couple of serious books have been written, but primarily it does not get treatment well by those in the industry. And I think I discovered that the reason is, is because the modalities that are out there now, mindfulness, uh, cognitive behavioral, uh, uh, yoga, uh, brain chemistry, all of that stuff, see, it doesn't touch the issue. You can't tell yourself to have better self-worth. You can't have somebody else tell you, well, you just need to think better about yourself and so you'll be better, right? It's just wrong thinking, therefore change your thinking. Okay, now I don't feel badly about myself anymore. Give that a try sometime and talk to yourself in the mirror and see if that helps you feel better after the boss has berated you and told you you're an idiot and you're probably going to get fired because of what you did. See, it doesn't work that way. And so I think I've discovered... This little secret that I'm sharing with you, now it's patented, so don't go on telling it to everybody else, right? But I firmly believe that grace is the only antidote to shame. You see, it's the reason that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8 and 1. See, it's because of our location, because of our relationship, that there's no condemnation. We may do bad things, but that doesn't make us a bad person. And see, what Satan wants us to do is say, yes, it does. 
Now, it doesn't mean that, oh, well, we sin that grace may abound. It doesn't matter. Of course not. See, that's one of the reasons why it's a paradox. It does exactly the opposite. It energizes us and gives us power rather than drains us and makes us weak and impotent. We can do all things through Christ because it strengthens me. I'm never going to leave you and forsake you. See, and once we get that, that it's not my power but God's power, that it makes all the difference in the world and we are changed. And so Paul would say to Timothy, Timothy, rekindle. Relight. Fan it into flames. If the fuel's died down, add fuel. Not, not the charcoal grill, but, but add the fuel. I know we've all done it, but just for fun, right? I want you to recharge those batteries. They've died down, but they can be recharged. Now, if we remember, we call to mind what God has done for us. We refresh that. We renew it. It can be energized once again. It can be rekindled. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, we're not strong in ourselves. We're not strong in our accomplishments. We're not strong because of our education. We're not strong because of our degrees or whatever else we've done. We're strong in the grace that is in Christ. And the more I realize that I have not measured up, the more I say, yeah, what else is new? That's not what your worth is based on. All of a sudden, I am a beloved child of God. That's the source of our strength. That's the source of the power that's within us. We do have worth, value, significance. But it's not because of what we've done. Everything we have done is going to be burned up. And the only thing that's left at the end of the day, as we remember from last week, is is the Son of Man going to find faith on the earth? See, shame says you're unworthy. Grace says you are worthy. So we accept that by faith. We're accepted in spite of our sins and our self-will. We don't despise ourselves, but we rejoice because God has made us his children. And so today might we embrace St. Paul's admonition and be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. May God be glorified by this message and may we empowered to live in the strength of his grace. Amen. Let's sing.